0: Morning. And I thought that was a wonderful addition then to our sermon and sermon text for this morning. And this morning's sermon text is from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. Most gracious, sovereign God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the birth of your son, Jesus. And as we rejoice in the names that were given from Scripture, the name of Jesus, meaning God save us, and Emmanuel, God with us, and we can rejoice that in Christmas, in the birth of Jesus, We celebrate that God came down to dwell among us as a man, that he might save us from our sins. I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding to behold the wonderful things that are in your word. That we might delight in them, be convicted of sin, and rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray, amen. So you may have noticed over the past few weeks th- that the texts that we've been looking at have more or less corresponded with the Advent calendars, or the, sorry, the Advent candles that we've been lighting. However, you may have also noticed that I've chosen instead not to focus on the candles, but what these texts communicate to us about Jesus, and in many of these cases, it was a title or a description or a characteristic of Jesus that was in that text. And thus, it is in a sense provided for us a, a primer in Christology, or maybe to say it a little more simple is a short overview about what the Bible teaches us of who Jesus is. And the primary way that we've learned about who Jesus is, is through prophecies about him in these past few weeks, and about the names that he would be called. The primary feature in our text from the past few weeks during this Advent series, we focused on different names and attributes for Jesus that we've been taught in the Bible. Names that are often at least in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, we see that names are often used to communicate more than just what someone is called. And so while we, in our culture, we often name our children just because we like the sound of the name, or maybe it's because it's another relative who has that name and we want to name them after that, sometimes we don't give much thought, just it sounds good, but that's often not the case in the Old Testament. We see many cases that someone's name communicates something about them, Um, We see this very clearly in Abraham as his name is changed from Abram, which means father of many, even though he has no kids, to Abraham, which means blessed father. Or if then, with Isaac, meaning laughter, because his mother laughed when she heard she was going to be pregnant. Or when the prophet Hosea is told to name his children in a very, very sobering story. it's a very sobering book in the Bible. and yet the names specifically represent something as those children are named. And it's very similar with the names we see given for Jesus. There's a very specific story that's being told simply through the names that are being applied to Jesus. And so today we'll be looking at the three names that are given for Jesus in Matthew 1. But first, I want to recap the names and descriptions that we looked at in recent weeks, one of which um, comes up in our text again today, which is, so from Isaiah 7.14, we read that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. From Isaiah 9.6, we're given four titles that we spoke about in our first Sunday of Advent. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then in Micah 5, we learned that Jesus will be a ruler, a shepherd, a king, a savior, and that he himself will be their peace. If you recall in the past few weeks, there's a lot of meaning in these titles, they're not just names. But here, what we read are three names that are specifically applied, not as prophecies, but from either Matthew or from the angel applied to our Lord and Savior. The first of which comes from the editorial comments of Matthew. And the other two, or the second of which is from the angel telling Joseph what he will be called. And the final one is Matthew adding another comment from prophecy. The names, though, are Christ, Jesus, and Emmanuel. The way that this text picks up, though, from what we're looking at today in 18 through 25, is following the genealogy. And the video that was just up a moment ago describes this genealogy and mentions how Matthew's making a direct connection to Genesis and his genealogy. And yet, what we read from the text we're looking at today and the beginning of the book of Matthew is that the birth of Jesus is unlike any other birth in all of history. And specifically, that his birth is different from all of the names that were just listed. And that was evident from our text last week as well. It's not every day that angels come to declare the birth of a child, and in the narrative we're shown what makes this birth remarkable. When we look at verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place or the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. A virgin conceives a child through the Holy Spirit. This message is communicated to Joseph for two purposes, one of which to be is that Joseph had this plan to dismiss his wife-to-be, and now this relationship was not, it's a little confusing, because when you look at the text, they're described as husband and wife, but they're betrothed, they're not yet married, and so it's because it's so different from our culture today. That legally, for this arrangement to be broken off, there had to be a divorce of sorts. But yet, they'd still not taken each other as husband and wife. The the marriage wasn't finished, but it was far more legally binding than our engagement ceremonies of today are. It's so binding that Matthew, in his comments, writes of them as husband and wife. But we still read at the end of this that he took his wife, Mary, but he didn't know her until after she'd given the birth, birth to the Christ child. But that's just sort of the background here. But at the beginning of that is where we get our first title. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning of this narrative, he's already referring to Jesus as the Christ. He, in fact, actually opens his gospel with that title, and yet it's worth mentioning that Christ isn't really a name. It is a title. It is a, a title that he takes on and fulfills. So it's not his last name and it's not a profanity, at least it shouldn't be, but rather it is a title and it's a significant title within the course of the Old Testament. However, it doesn't appear in the Old Testament, at least not as that word. Matthew, though, opens our text today with the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And yet, the way he opens his book in verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Adam, And those extra little characteristics there, the son of David, the son of Adam, help us to fill out what Matthew's referring to as he says Christ. Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus as the son of Abraham. Not the son of Adam, as I misspoke a moment ago. That's in Luke's genealogy. Um, This is tied to the title of Christ. It shows that Matthew is clearly asserting that Jesus is the fulfillment of of promises that have been made to Israel. He is the one that they've been waiting for. There's no one else they ought to look for. Matthew begins his gospel by strongly declaring that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited Christ. He's the fulfillment of prophecies that were made to Abraham and the fulfillment of prophecies that were made to David. God promises both Abraham and David that they will have a son in some way or another. Abraham finds this promise fulfilled in his son Isaac, but yet there's still a continued promise to be fulfilled. And that's that through you, all families of the earth will be blessed in Genesis 12.3. So Matthew is by the statement of Jesus being the son of Abraham, stating that he is the fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. That in Jesus, all families of the earth are blessed blessed. But then he also connects it to the son of David, which draws us to 2 Samuel 7. We've been looking at that on uh, Wednesday nights over the past few weeks, where David is promised that he will be made into a dynasty. David sees that he lives in a palace and says, How is it that I live in a palace, but the Lord still dwells in a moving tent, the tabernacle? And David declares he's going to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord responds to him and says, You're not going to build me a house, but I am going to build you into a house. I am going to build you into a dynasty. And your offspring, your son, will take the throne, and his kingdom will never end and for the reader it almost looks for a split second maybe even shorter than that that Solomon would be this son but it becomes really quickly apparent in the text that Solomon is not this promised son as he lives as he leaves a lot to be desired for this promised son so Matthew though similarly to what he stated about Abraham is showing that Jesus is the son of David, and thus the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So the two significant promises that the reader in the first century would be looking for, the first century um, Jew would be looking for, Matthew's opening is saying, this is who you've been waiting for. This is the Christ, the Messiah, who you've been waiting for for all these years. And so the genealogy establishes Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, the king. And yet when we talk about Messiah, Christ, son of David, we're really referring to the same thing. Um, Messiah and Christ are the same word, just in a different language. Messiah comes from Hebrew, Christ comes from Greek. We've brought those into English, though. And yet what they actually mean is the anointed one. We know that the Christ is the Savior, the Son of David, but what do we mean by anointed one? And so the first question, or really the the direction we would go from there is to track who is anointed in the Bible, what sort of people are anointed in the Bible. And there's two specific people we see, or types of people that we see anointed in the Old Testament, the first of which are priests, so we see that in Leviticus, the second of which are kings. So the one example we see this very clearly um, would be in First Samuel 15, where David is called, where Samuel goes out and finds David and he is anointed there as king. So priests and kings are anointed in the scriptures. And yet that shows us exactly the kind of of Messiah Jesus is, that he is a priest and a king. And we see that filled out very clearly in the book of Hebrews. And yet, the second of these names we get to, that this is the one that the angel tells Joseph. He says it this way, you shall call his name. And that phrase is repeated twice in this text. We'll get to the other one in a moment. But the angel Or an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And so this name is introduced, you shall call his name, and then he's given the name, And then he's given what the name means. So interestingly, when the angel appears to Joseph in the dream, he first makes an appeal to Joseph's lineage. He says, Joseph, son of David. So he's reminding Joseph that he comes from the line of David. And with the rest of these statements, he's telling him that the boy will be king. Joseph is told that he will name the child Jesus. But there's a further statement following this instruction that demonstrates the importance of the name. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's because the name Jesus means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. And so his very name has meaning and intent, that in the very name of Jesus, as Joseph is naming him Jesus, the statement is that the Lord is going to save his people through this child. Now, there's some debate over whether or not Jesus' name was actually Jesus, or if his name was Jeshua or Jehoshua or some form of Joshua. Joshua. And truth be told, it's not that important of a debate because at the end of the day, these names all mean the Lord saves or God saves. But when we look at our Bible, when we look at the Bible that we have, that is inspired, that is breathed out by God, the way that this name has been reported to us and recorded to us is the name of Jesus. Now, there's no J in Greek, so... It was an I, but that's neither here nor there. The way that we have it in English is Jesus, and that is a satisfactory name. But you'll find people get really caught up in this. And it's, I don't know if I want to use the word funny, but it's funny because in many cases, people will be really focused on what we should call Jesus, and then they miss his entire identity. And I have actually have an example of this is, there's a man that I met when I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was in seminary, I was on my lunch break from work, and where I was working, there was a handful of restaurants right by our store. So I walked over, and there was a man on a sidewalk right in front of a Chick-fil-A, ironically, that had a sign that said Christianity has failed. Apparently, this was a censored version of his previous sign because the police pulled over and Told him he couldn't have one that says Christianity is heresy, so you can see where this conversation's going already. But I walked over to him and I talked to him about the sign that he was holding, and at some point I said something about Jesus, and he responds with "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That—that's that, not his name." This conversation gets more interesting, and he tells me that his name was Jehoshua. But then a few minutes later, he did something really interesting. He denied the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity. And so it's ironic and frankly foolish that he would be insistent that you can only know Jesus by a name that's not recorded in the Bible and then immediately after deny how the Scriptures speak of Jesus. The text that tells us who Jesus is is the Scriptures, and now it's very possible that Jesus' Hebrew name or Aramaic name was Jeshua or Jehoshua. But that's not the name that's recorded in our inspired scripture. So it ends up being really straining at gnats over a tradition we don't know about. But if someone's insisting on pronouncing the name of Jesus a certain way and then missing his character and attributes, then they miss the person altogether. Jesus saves, absolutely, amen. But you have to be talking about the right Jesus. Just insisting on his name being a certain thing and then missing his characteristics altogether is not only foolish, it's damnable. And yet we still have plenty of people today who believe in Jesus. They use the same name for Jesus and yet they entirely miss who he is. Even as we look around the world and the major religions around us, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even a vast majority of the people we know believe in some sort of Jesus, but it's not the right Jesus. The angel gives Joseph the name Jesus because he will save his people. So even at his birth... And in his very name, the confession means that Jesus saves. But we have to be speaking about the same Jesus. And the second name is introduced with a similar phrase. If you look over to verse 23, following the angel giving this name, In 22, Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7.14, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Same structure as how how the angel introduced Jesus. And then we get the definition, which means God with us. So the angel, or Matthew in his recording of this, is picking up on that same structure that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 7.14 and then applies it to Jesus' name to make a parallel between the significance of these names that are applied to the Christ child. And the statement here, so in... The name of Jesus, we learn that God is saving His people. God will save His people through this child. The name of Emmanuel, we learn that it is God dwelling among His people. And so, this text, though, in sorry, in this statement here, the scope changes. It's it's not you shall call His name; it's they shall call His name, and. The text seems to be making more a I- statement about his identity rather than people calling him Emmanuel, confessing rather than just the name they would refer to him as, and demonstrating who he is. It's a statement much more than just about what his name will be or what he will be called, but it's about his very identity. That in these names were shown who he actually is. And a few weeks ago, we glanced at Isaiah 7:14, the text that's referenced here in verse 23, and we looked at how it's a prophecy that was originally spoken to King Ahaz, and King Ahaz is told in an odd prophecy to test God. And generally speaking, you would think that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't test God. And so Ahaz responds in saying, "I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to test God." And You would think that would be the wise decision, but what Ahaz is doing is actually rejecting this prophecy, because Ahaz is told, test the Lord, put the Lord your God to test, and he will send you a sign, and the sign will be a child, and his name shall be Emmanuel. But Ahaz, at an appearance of being more holy, but he's not, he refuses to look for this sign... And instead, he partners with the nation of Assyria, who would soon take over. And yet, it's interesting, because that's not that unfamiliar of a response today that we see. That someone is told the good news of Emmanuel, and they have a similar response as Ahaz. They refuse to look for this sign. They refuse to look for God dwelling among his people. And yet, we shouldn't be surprised because it's the same response that many had in Jesus' day. That doesn't stop reality, though. It doesn't stop that God stepped into history, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, and dwelt among his people. His name is Jesus, but he will be the Emmanuel. He will be God dwelling among his people, God with us yet we rejoice that in that life, as he's dwelt among his people, picking up on that language and that characteristics of the Old Testament tabernacle, where God or the temple, where God is dwelling in the middle of the people, as they're in the wilderness. And so if you've been in Sunday school, if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, and you see that in the very center of the camp is where God is dwelling among the people. And as they're moving, the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp. So God is, in the Old Testament, literally dwelling in the middle of the people. And so Jesus here, in the same language that we see in Emmanuel, in the same language we see in John 1, has taken on flesh and is dwelling among his people as God was dwelling among his people in the tabernacle or in the temple, in the most holy place. And yet it's important that we do not ignore who Jesus is merely by claiming his name. We beautifully confess what's written in Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Or as well as in Philippians 2, in 9 through 11, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him The name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's important that you know who Jesus actually is. We can't make things up about Jesus The name Jesus Christ is not merely a magical word. The reason that we confess the name of Jesus is beautiful is because who he reveals himself to be and who the name reveals to us. And there's a hymn in our hymnal. It's number 95. And don't worry, I'm not going to ruin the hymn if you like this hymn. It's called, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And this is a a common theme that's coming up in modern contemporary praise and worship music. There's several songs that touch on this idea of how wonderful the name of Jesus is. And while I agree that the name of Jesus is indeed a wonderful name, it's not merely the sound of the name. Or it's not merely knowing the name. I mean, how often have you met somebody that says, yeah, I know Jesus, but they clearly do not know Jesus? Um... An illustration I've used many times is if I were speaking to somebody and I were to say, oh, do you know my wife? And they go, yeah. And then they start describing my wife as being six foot two, you know, bright red hair and that she's a retired volleyball player. It's abundantly clear they don't know my wife. They might know that her name is Vanessa, but none of those things are true about her. And the same thing, you speak to somebody who says, yeah, I know Jesus. And then they describe something completely bonkers. And we see this quite regularly. Anytime someone from outside the church says, that's not the Jesus I know, and then they say something that's blasphemous, it's clear they don't know Jesus. And I even, I don't know why, I saw a clip from the TV show Modern Family recently, which I've never watched that show, but somehow this clip came across my um, computer or phone. And it was odd because somehow one of the characters who lives a sinful lifestyle, uh, ends up filling in for this Christian band, and they're singing. um, It's ridiculous, actually. But they're they're singing about biblical truth concerning um, human sexuality. Specifically, the line is, man should not lie with another man. Um, And this character, who's homosexual, begins to correct them during the show. And the comment they made is, like, the Jesus I know... And for the Christian, that becomes abundantly clear. The Jesus you know is not real because that's not who the scriptures have revealed him to be. The scriptures reveal to us a Jesus who believes the word of God and affirms the word of God. And yet, at the same point, for some reason, people seem to believe and confess that the name of Jesus simply has some sort of magical field just by pronouncing it. And to reference another mediocre TV show that aired for about 15 years called Supernatural in the early, um, terrible show, but in the early seasons there was an episode where there was some sort of like demon or sickness or something on an airplane. And the way that they would cure this ailment was they would just say Christos. Actually, I think they said it Christos. I think they said it wrong, probably to become less controversial. And yet, the idea that they're conveying is that just speaking the name of Jesus has a magic power. And that's not, that's not true. Mu- magic does not happen just because someone speaks the name of Jesus. And yet, whether this sounds silly, that's exactly what the world around us believes. We see that, that someone will say something, they try to claim something in Jesus' name. Or they try to rebuke something in Jesus' name but they don't know who Jesus is, they don't believe in Jesus, they live a life that's completely contradictory to that which the Lord has told his disciples to live. And, And another example of this is, Muslims believe in a Jesus, they call him Esau, but they reject that he was born of a virgin, they reject that he is the Son of God, they reject that he is the Messiah, so clearly, they don't believe in the same Jesus we do. They believe completely contradictory to what Christians believe. Mormons, in another example, they believe in a Jesus, but they believe that he was created. Well, we've been learning that he's the eternal father, or he's the eternal ruler. They believe that he is the brother of Satan. That's, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. We as Christians, confess that he is from everlasting. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, one who was begotten, not one who was made. And yet it might seem like I'm just harping on one simple point or one hobby horse, but you cannot be a Christian and believe wrong things about Jesus. There's a place for learning things. There's a place for advancing in your learning and discipleship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about believing things about Jesus that are not biblical and refusing to to repent when you're confronted on them. And if this seems like it's just a small thing where I'm harping on theology, go look at Paul's letters. The vast majority of Paul's letters are correcting people on wrong views of Jesus. The book of Colossians, there's a heresy going around in the church of Colossae. And Paul is correcting that heresy, saying what you guys are believing about Jesus is wrong. I'm correcting this, but he does it in love. The book of Galatians is a misunderstanding of what Jesus has done and correcting their view of Jesus by showing them that they cannot earn their salvation through the signs of the old covenant. Ephesians, same thing. Paul is instructing and correcting false doctrine. The vast majority of Paul's letters are correcting something wrong with something that's right. And that is a strong key of what we as Christians need to do. We need to make sure those around us are believing the right things about God, the right things about Christ, and the right things about salvation. And yet the names that are given for Jesus in this text give us a significant picture of who he is. Jesus, the Lord saves. Christ, the King, the Son of David, the fulfillment of Scripture. Emmanuel, God with us. And we put all of that together. These titles teach us that God has become a man to dwell among us so that he might save his people And yet, he, as the Christ, takes on the role of the eternal king whose kingdom will have no end. One of the most important questions that you will have to answer in this life and in eternity is, who is Jesus? And that's one of the most important questions for every individual we encounter. And it's it's odd, the... The late musician Tom Petty, who's um, one of my favorite musicians, but one of my least favorite theologians, Um, he made a really foolish comment in an interview once where he says, no one gets Christ wrong more than the Christians. Now, he was wrong, but there's a part in which he might be right. I think many self-professed Christians may get Jesus wrong But it's not the Christians who get Jesus the most wrong. It's those who hear who Jesus is, what he's done, and do nothing at all. The, if you have the right understanding of who Jesus is, then you will fall on your face, repent of your sins, and look to Jesus for forgiveness. And profess Jesus as God and Lord. The verse that's up there every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We cannot afford to get Jesus wrong. It is quite literally a matter of life or death, of heaven or hell. And yet, at the Christmas season, we see this quite frequently. I've said this before, but far too often we leave Jesus in the manger. The Christ child was born. Jesus is born, he's born in the manger, and that's as far as people get. Failing to realize that he grew up, that he lived a life of perfection that we should have lived, died a death that the sinners deserve to die, and yet in his death he takes our sins upon himself, nails them to his cross, and cancels the record of our debt so that we might be given new life. And thus the question that every person must answer is who is Jesus? And the question that every Christian must answer every day is who is Jesus? If he is indeed your Savior, and you you believe that he had this perfect life and that he died the death that we should have died to bring forgiveness for our sins, that he rose again conquering death And brings his saints new life. Then it changes everything about how you live your life. How you make decisions. Where you find your hope and your encouragement. Changes how you work. Where you work. The gospel changes everything. But if it doesn't change anything... And that's one easy sign that you do not know Jesus or do not understand the gospel. It's one easy sign that those around us who might be professing to be Christians do not know Jesus or do not understand the gospel. Yet we have good news of great joy to proclaim to a world that is dying. We can have joy in the proclamation of Jesus as this child who's born in a manger but is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a wonderful Christmas message that this Emmanuel came to save His people, and He saves to the uttermost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scriptures we have that reveal to us Your Son, that reveal to us Jesus. God who has taken on flesh to save his people. I pray that as we go out today, the world, as we celebrate Christmas with our loved ones, we have comfort and a wonderful message to proclaim to the world around us. That Jesus, the Emmanuel, offers forgiveness for sins that separate us from you. I pray we have boldness in this message and confidence in this message. And we delight in the Christ child. We delight in the man, Jesus Christ. And find ourselves overjoyed at the wonderful forgiveness that is found at the foot of the cross. I pray that the manger points us to the cross and points us to the empty tomb and leads us to look forward to the second coming of Christ where he will return to judge the living and the dead that every name every knee will bow every tongue will confess that he is God the name of Jesus is a wonderful name but I pray that we have the wisdom to understand who he is and not just his name, to understand that when we know who Jesus is, it changes everything about us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.